If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. One, understand storytelling principles. Two, see how other writers have applied those principles. And then three, use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor and poet, and I have a passion for middle grade and young adult stories, spy stories, fairy tales and master detective novels. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for and about women. On today's episode, Valerie pitched a few good men so that we can study the hero's gift expressed. This 1992 film was directed by Rob Reiner from a screenplay by Aaron Sorkin based on the original stage play, which was first produced on Broadway in 1989. Of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And we'd love it if you could leave the show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do this right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page and scroll to the bottom. It's that simple. All right, Valerie, so what have you got for the genre this week? Okay, so this is interesting. From a marketing perspective, I think A Few Good Men could successfully be pitched as a legal thriller or a courtroom thriller or a crime story or a courtroom drama. I think anyone who likes those kinds of stories would be happy with this movie. It would make sense to them. However, from the writer's perspective, I'm calling this a performance business. So performance is the genre, business is the subgenre. And by business, I mean that the protagonist is performing in his or her career. The secondary genre I have listed as status sentimental. Uh, now, Kathy isn't a weak person, but the key here is that the protagonist is in a weaker or an underdog position. He's up against significant odds that he's not necessarily equipped to handle. And I think that makes sense for Kathy, given that he's never tried a case in a courtroom and his rank is far inferior to Jessup's. Now, one note here is that uh, performance stories are often paired with status stories. It is a combo that works really well and it's a crowd pleaser for sure. Uh, Melanie, what did you have for the genre? All right, so I had similar to you. So I had yeah, a performance legal story, which I think would fit absolutely into that business side of the house as well because that's what they do, that's their trade. And for the secondary genre, I had status sentimental as well, but I did probably weigh more towards um, Kathy being a weak protagonist um, because he, I think he's sold out or he's biding his time until he can get out of the Navy now that's that's just how I you know I've take take it, but I think it's you know between the two of us, it's pretty much of a muchness. He is in a weaker position and he is an underdog, especially when compared to Jessup. But there are some aspects of a few good men which could make it a morality story, but I don't think it moves along the emotional spectrum of selfishness and altruism. So I see instead that Kathy gains some honour, which I also think is important in a, in a story that uses military characters. Now, an interesting thing that I thought I'd share with you and everybody this week was that I was reading some reviews or critical comments about the movie and a lot of the comments um, were quite critical because they felt that the story fell, fell flat because there was no mystery to the crime. And I got the distinct feeling from reading it, the comments that they thought it should be a whodunit. And that really surprised me because I thought the story was powerful because it raised questions around the theory of ethics and the practical application of those ethics in the real world. So I was really surprised that people thought it should be a bit more of a whodunit. Um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. It is interesting because there is a bit of a mystery element to it. You know, it's the whole question of who ordered the code red. But, you know, all of that notwithstanding, it has not hurt Aaron Sorkin's career in any way, shape or form. <laughs> all right, let's get down to the topic of the season. Last season, we studied Being the Ricardos, which is 
Aaron Sorkin's latest film. And in that episode, I made the comment that he was pushing the boundaries of story form and he was experimenting with new ideas because he'd already made so many movies that were really good. He came out of the gate at a superior level of craft. So, you know, he's naturally trying to level himself up and see what he is capable of. So I thought this season, it might be kind of fun to look at his starting point because A Few Good Men is the first story he ever wrote. It's an impressive starting point. And none of us should feel inferior because of it. Even if you don't like Aaron Sorkin, you know, if he's not your cup of tea, even if this film is not your cup of tea, I understand that this is art. And, you know, we are all going to have different personal reactions to it. But if we can allow ourselves to look at this objectively so that we can look at the craft and see how he has applied the principles of storytelling in order to pull this off, then there's lots here for us to learn from. Because listen, to be honest, Melanie and I could attack this film from any angle and it would stand up. Structurally, this thing is like a tank. It's a terrific example of the Hero's Gift Express, which is what I'm studying this season, and I'll get into that in a minute. But it's also a good example of exposition and how we can use that effectively. So let me start with exposition. I'm sure you've heard that writers are supposed to show, not tell, right? I mean, how many times have we heard that? It's actually not true. The axiom is show and tell, like we did in kindergarten, show and tell. That it's the same thing here. Show meaning representing an idea or a plot point in a dramatic way. And tell meaning imparting the information in a non-dramatic way. As authors, what we want to do is understand what each of these writing techniques does well. What does show do well? What does tell do well? And what is it that they don't do so well? If you're simply telling your reader facts about the story and the characters, so you have an overemphasis on tell, an overemphasis on exposition, because that's what exposition is, you're robbing your reader of the chance to become emotionally involved in the story. But if the pendulum swings too far the other way and we're showing everything or trying to dramatize everything, then you're messing up the pace of your story. You're slowing it down. You're putting emphasis on things that do not need to have emphasis on them. And your reader is still going to lose interest in your story because it's going to feel like there's nothing actually happening. It's really fascinating. I just love story theory. Okay. So generally speaking, and this is a general rule of thumb, you you will definitely see lots of um, exceptions to what I'm about to say, but this is a good starting point. If you're trying to understand exposition a little better and you're trying to see it, identify it in other people's work. Okay. So generally we tend to see more exposition at the beginning of a story. And there's a good reason for that. The reader or the writer, excuse me, is just trying to orient the reader or viewer as quickly as possible. Just get the reader into the story. Tell them what they need to know. And A Few Good Men does this exactly. Let me give you a couple of examples. And these come in the first 15 minutes of the film. Like it's it's exposition heavy. But the reason that the exposition works is that Aaron Sorkin has made Kathy a stand-in for the audience. Kathy is new to the military. He's been there for, I think they said, just under nine months. So he needs things explained to him. Well, the chances are the majority of the audience are not U.S. Marines. And so we're also going to need the military jargon and the military system explained to us. So it's the exposition is organic. All right. So 10 minutes in, this is when Danny is given the case. His superior officer mentions a fence line. Well, the viewer doesn't understand what a fence line is necessarily any more than Kathy does. So Kathy says, what's a fence line? To which Sam replies, it's a big wall separating the good guys from the bad guys. So this is a tiny little bit of exposition that ensures that the audience is keeping up with the story. 
It keeps the story moving. Like this whole exchange takes maybe 10 seconds. And as an added bonus, it reveals Sam's personality and the relationship he has with Danny. Sam doesn't particularly like Danny, but he knows he's a good attorney because Sam is a bit sarcastic when he's, when he's explaining things to Danny. Because clearly Sam is a career military man and he's not too keen with having this, you know, upstart show up and only being there for nine months and thumbing his nose at uh, the hierarchy and the way of life in the, in the military. Okay. 12 minutes in, this is when Sam and Danny have their first meeting with Joanne. It's in Joanne's office. And Sam has to explain who Colonel Jessup is and what Gitmo stands for. Sam also gives a statement of Danny's background and his credentials. He's a hotshot lawyer, but is new to the military. Now, for her part, Joanne explains her role in all of this. If Danny and Sam have been put on the case, the, the, the audience is wondering, like, why is she still here? <laughs> what is her part in all of this? And it's because her jurisdiction, as she says, is pretty much in Kathy's face. So this, this is a great scene for you to study for exposition. It really is a beautiful, beautiful scene. And it's quintessential Aaron Sorkin, because all of this exposition is achieved through rapid fire dialogue that together still makes a working scene. It's exposition, but it's a working scene. It takes very little screen time and it's organic. Why is it organic? Kathy doesn't understand the military and Joanne doesn't know who Kathy is. So they're introducing themselves to one another effectively. And by extension, they're introducing themselves to us, the audience. You don't even notice this exposition. It flies by. It is seamless. It's invisible. It orients the viewer to uh, a very particular but foreign setting, since most of us are not uh, U.S. Marines. <laughs> now, conveying facts to the reader or viewer is one function of exposition. But another function is to propel the story forward. And that's called exposition as ammunition. Let me give you an example. At about 25 minutes in, um, we've already established that Kathy is new to the military and that he needs Sam to explain terms and procedures to him. Great. This is when Danny is back on the baseball diamond and Joanne comes to see him. Joanne puts him on the spot and it kind of puts him in his place, really, by asking him if he knows what a code red is. And of course he doesn't. And he doesn't have Sam there to immediately explain it. We don't know what a code red is. So we need to follow Kathy as he goes in search of the answer. So in terms of narrative drive, Aaron Sorkin has planted a question in our minds, the same question that Kathy has. What's a code red? Why, why is this important? So what does Kathy do? He goes to his client, Harold, and ha asks him to explain a code red. This is another scene that is heavily exposition, but is totally organic. The exposition is invisible. The scene uses dialogue to convey the information quickly and clearly to the audience, but it's also setting up the rest of the movie. This is the ammunition part. Once the viewer knows that a code red is an unofficial disciplinary action, it raises all kinds of questions, including, importantly, who ordered it? And of course, that's the story's climax, right? In the courtroom, that's the, the big uh, showdown between Kathy and Jessup, all about who ordered the code red and you can't handle the truth and you're damn right I did. Like that famous, famous scene. It's set up here early in the movie through exposition. I mean, the guy's a master. What did you think about that, Melanie? Oh, I agree. I think that, you know, the exposition in um, in this movie is outstanding. Um uh, and it, but it also really, it, there's a style of dialogue that comes from playwriting. 
And you can really hear that throughout this movie. And it's very different from other movies where maybe people don't have a background in theatre. So I can really see how this originated from a stage play. Um, and I think that dialogue is exceptional. Um, but I also think the dialogue does a couple of other things as well, right? It really establishes the characteristics of Sam, Caffey and Joe. And I, I'm a little bit more critical of Caffey probably <laughs> than maybe you are, but I think Caffey's ignorance is not only due to his short time in the military because his father was in the Navy and is, was a judge um, and was held in quite high esteem. So I actually think his ignorance is quite deliberate on his part. Because it, but it also shows that the dialogue does this for him because it establishes his real lack of interest in the Navy and what's going on. And it also provides a really good contrast for Kathy and Joe and Sam because of what they know and what he doesn't know. So it establishes their credentials. And like you mentioned, you know, they are there in the Navy because they believe in the job that they do and they have a greater situational awareness just because they're interested and they're the choices that they've made. So the dialogue does a lot of that characterization as well and it works because it aligns the characters with the roles that they take in the movie too. So I'm with you. I think this is a fantastic movie structurally and it's a fantastic movie in terms of how the dialogue does so many different jobs in the movie, like establishes their character. It, it shows their, where they're coming from um, and it gives you a whole lot of information that you're probably not even aware of. So, yeah, I'm with you. I think it's a, a great example. And anyone who wants to improve their dialogue writing technique, I really think that studying stage plays is such a valuable exercise and there's so many good ones. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to say anything else because I'll just go off on a tangent. All right. <laughs> um, let's talk about the hero's gift expressed. All right. Well, Kathy's gift is that he's a good lawyer. He's better than average, but he's not as good as he could be. He does outperform his colleagues uh, who are there day to day, but he is in his father's shadow, 100%. So how do we know this? Well, all of the other characters tell us, <laughs> and we see it in practice. And this is exactly the same approach that we've seen in other uh, uh, movies this season where the hero's gift was being expressed and developed effectively. So once again, we see that the gift is established very early. At eight minutes in, this is the very first scene with Kathy. While he's practicing baseball, we see him plead a drug possession charge down to a C misdemeanor with 15 days restricted duty. So tick that box. Uh, other characters, as I said, are revealing and endorsing the gift to the audience. Uh, let me just go through them. So Danny often questions his own ability to try a case in a courtroom, but the other characters have faith. And Danny's uncertainty is essential here because if he was 100% sure that he could do it and the other characters are 100% sure he can do it, then there's no tension in the story. You've just drained all the interest out of your story. If the ending is a foregone conclusion, we don't need to read the book to find out how it ends. <laughs> so, all right, who are these other characters who are endorsing uh, Caffey's ability, his gift? Well, first of all, we have division, right? Which is the government. This happens at 10 minutes in because Caffey is the one requested by division for the code red case. And Sam knows that Kathy will have the case resolved in four days. Then, of course, we have Sam. This happens at about 12 minutes in, and it's during the first meeting with Joanne. And Sam states Kathy's uh, credentials outright. And this is proof of his gift, right? He says, quote, Kathy is generally considered to be the best litigator in our office. He, he has successfully plea bargained 44 cases in nine months. This makes Kathy better than Joanne, too. So he's better than all the other people in the office, but he's also better than Joanne because she's only closed three cases in two years. So toward the end of the middle build, Sam also says that if he ever needed a lawyer to defend him, he would choose Kathy. And he compliments Kathy on the way he cross-examines Kendrick. He says, 
You should have seen yourself thunder away at Kendrick. This is really high praise for Sam. And it's a real shift in Sam's opinion of him. Because at the beginning, he tolerates Kathy because he's ordered to. At the end, he's there because he wants to be there because he's, Kathy has earned his respect effectively. Then we have Ross. This is the Kevin Bacon character. He is the government lawyer. So this is his opponent. He endorses Kathy by saying, quote, Danny is an awfully talented lawyer. He also does it in the courtroom when Kathy discredits one of his witnesses on redirect. This is the, the whole bit about, you know, how does the officer know, or the, he's not even an officer. He's sort of a low level uh, guy. Um, how does he know where the mess hall is if it isn't in the rule book? Right in that scene, we see Kevin Bacon's character smile because he, he appreciates how quickly Kathy was thinking on his feet. And then a scene or two later, we see them in a bar together because they were buddies in college. That's how these two know each other, Ross and Kathy. And Ross then openly compliments Kathy on, well, that was some pretty fancy lawyering work you did back there. And finally, there's Joanne. Now, she is unimpressed by Kathy for a good portion of the movie. But at 54 minutes in, this is just before the midpoint shift, she says when she's trying to, Kathy wants to get off the case because it's going to go to court and he doesn't know how to do it. So he's like, how do I, he says to Sam, how do I get another lawyer assigned? And Sam tells him, well, Joanne is not going to have this. She says to Kathy, another lawyer won't be good enough. You know how to win. And then a little bit later than that, she says to Danny, I think you're an exceptional lawyer. The jury, the jury responds to you. And again, this is totally different than her opinion of him at the 12 minute mark when they first meet. So after all these endorsements, we actually get to see Danny's gift on display. So we saw the initial uh, uh, spark of it at the eight minute mark when he gets that drug charge, uh, when he pleads out that drug drug charge. But then of course, there's the whole final act, which is all that it's wonderful. So at about an hour and a half in, we see Danny discrediting Kendrick on the stand and it's not easy to do it, but uh, he does. And everyone's impressed by it. I think Danny is actually kind of impressed that he was able to do it as well. And at an hour and 56 minutes, uh, into the film, that all the way to the end. This is the whole bit with Jessup on the stand, right? This is the big climax of the whole movie. It's a, I think it's about 15 minutes long. Danny is beginning to question Jessup and he starts out a little shaky, which is how it should be, right? Because Danny isn't quite sure if his gift for law is really good enough to help him win this court in case, because this is tough. He's going up against a decorated colonel. The stakes here are high. But time and time again through this like 15 minute courtroom scene, we see Danny expressing his gift as a lawyer. He's getting better and better until finally the gift is properly expressed when they're shouting at each other and he gets Jessup to confess to ordering the code red. So from the time it's maybe two, three minutes. I forgot to time it. It's not real long. From the time where Jessup says, you can't handle the truth, that famous line, to him saying, you're goddamn right I did, in terms of I did order the code red, that's the gift really being expressed. And it is mwah, beautiful. Uh, two hours, 11 minutes in, thanks to Kathy's gift, Dawson and Downey are acquitted on two charges. That's uh, murder and conspiracy to, to commit murder. But on the charge of conduct on becoming a U.S. Marine, they are found guilty and they are dishonorably discharged. So once again, just like we saw in several of the other movies so far this uh, season, we've got the gift being established early in the story within the first 10 minutes. We have the gift being expressed in the climax of the story when it's working. <laughs> uh, we have the hero being aware of his ability, but unsure of the full extent of his capability. 
he might know that he's a bit better than the average bear, but he certainly, he or she certainly is not aware of their full, full potential. If they were aware of their full potential, they would have already expressed it. The whole story is the process of them becoming aware of it and expressing it for the first time. And we also see that the other characters in the story are endorsing the hero's gift. So thereby, what they're doing is letting the reader or viewer know that in the world of the story, the hero is pretty special. Because we don't live in that world. So we don't, maybe all the lawyers are as good as, as um, Kathy. We need the other lawyers that exist in Kathy's world to let us know that, no, he's special. 44 cases in nine months is not something that the, the average lawyer is going to pull off. So this is a, listen, this is a beautifully written story. It is rock solid in terms of structure. And this is where Aaron Sorkin started. This is where he started. <laughs> I mean, we should all be so lucky to be able to write something like that, even 10 years into our careers. Uh, and if you can start, if you can come out of the gate writing at this level, then I'm, I'm delighted for you. I'm very happy for you. And I look forward to seeing where your career goes from here because you're clearly, um, you know, uh, in pretty good company. Melanie. So it's interesting, isn't it? To, to see this is where Aaron Sorkin started and then to compare this with, um, being the Ricardo's because, <laughs> because I actually think that this is a much better structure story than being the Ricardos, you know, dialogue and all those things aside. Anyway, so it's just a really, if this is where you start and that's where you go, maybe that's from my point of view, a bit of a cautionary tale, but, <laughs> but I think it's, um, it is, a you know, it's a, it is a credit to him that this is the starting point and, it's, I think, if he'd stuck to telling stories that are of a similar caliber, then maybe um, being the Ricardos would have been a better story than, than what it was. But that's just my, you know, my two cents worth on, on that. Right. And it, this is, as Valerie has mentioned, you know, such a great story. And it is great from the view of the forces of the antagonism as well. And I think this is the first story we've watched this season where I've identified four types of antagonism and maybe a bit of a sub, a subtype as well. So the ones that I've picked out for this is there's a villain, there are conflict creators, a corrupt entity, and the protagonist himself. So the villain is Colonel Jessup, played superbly by Jack Nicholson. And the brilliance of Colonel Jessup in this story is the empathy he creates. So he is the protagonist of his own story and most of what he has to say is truthful. But now, don't get me wrong, I don't have any sympathy for him. I don't think what he did was honourable at all, but I do agree with most of what he has to say. So the rationale for his decision-making decision makes sense to me and I'll go into a bit more detail about that later. So I've also made a bit of a distinction between the corrupt entity and the official entity as forces of antagonism. So I think it's important to be precise about the corrupt entity because it is the leadership of the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base run by Jessup, and it's not necessarily the Department of the Navy. And I've separated it because it is Jessup's leadership that is corrupt and it has created a toxic culture and it's not necessarily the Department of the Navy's culture. So the Department of the Navy is actually represented by Captain Jack Ross, who is the prosecuting officer. And it's his job to make the government's case um, that Harold and London are guilty of murder, conspiracy to commit murder and conduct unbecoming of a US Marine. So Caffey's defence team must mount a case to disprove these charges. So Jack is naturally going to be a force of antagonism as the opposing lawyer for the government. 
So the conflict creators in here that I've really sort of honed in on or defined are Lieutenant Commander Joanne Galloway and Lance Corporal Harold Dawson. So Joe is an idealist whose knowledge of the military justice system is essential in this story. She's also a true believer in what the military can represent, which is honour, sacrifice and safety. Joe is also an advocate for the accused. She sees through the smoke and mirrors of the corrupt entity and she agitates everyone around her for the truth, which is not quite the same as justice. Um, it's a good point to make. So truth and justice don't always mean the same thing. So Joe is a positive force of antagonism against Kathy um, because she actually challenges him to become a better lawyer, I think, and therefore puts down challenges to him all the time. Harold is a conflict creator and he is the one that really gets under Kathy's skin because Kathy thinks that Harold should be grateful for the plea bargain that he's negotiated with Jack, but instead Harold will not plead guilty or take Kathy's advice because what Harold and London value is their honour and they value that above all else and it drives most of their decision-making and it is front and centre in their lives. And Kathy doesn't understand that, but he needs to, to represent them properly. I've also identified Lieutenant Colonel Markinson as a conflict creator, but he is also representative of the corrupt entity at the start of the movie because he knows what's going on in Guantanamo Bay and he does nothing about it. But he transitions to a conflict creator when he goes AWOL and ends up in Kathy's car in an attempt to right some of his wrongs and to stand up to Jessup. Um, so he's in there as well, but it's probably, he doesn't, he's not as strong a force of antagonism as other actors or other characters in this story. And then the final force of antagonism is Lieutenant Junior Grade Daniel Caffey himself. He represents the legal equivalent of a grifter. He has no honour, no respect and no understanding of what his plea bargains mean for those that he represents. And he's only in the Navy to bide his time. Caffey is more interested in coaching a softball team than he is, in my opinion, being a good lawyer. In this case, a good lawyer means holding the Navy and the Marines to account and to test their execution of military law. In fact, Caffey, he's got a reputation as the best plea bargain lawyer in JAG. So his cases don't go to court. And in Joanne's words, he follows the path of least resistance. Now, Caffey, in my view, is also a terrible officer. He forces his peers to find him on the sports pitch so they can just do their job because he's not in his office. He's ignorant of standard military courtesies he's insubordinate and he is sloppy. So setting up Kathy in this way is really important. And I want to share this quote with you because I think it succinctly describes the start point for the forces of antagonism and what their job is in the story. And this is a quote from Heather, Heather Davis. If your protagonist is going to be a great fit for your novel, they need to have a fairly unhealthy relationship with the point you are trying to make in the novel. Why? Because they haven't actually learned the point yet. That's exactly what makes them the ideal protagonist for your novel. So what is Kathy's unhealthy relationship with the point of this story? Well, he has no honour. This story operates to illustrate a number of points. And I think Kathy has quite a few character deficiencies, but I'll grab, the, I'll grab the top three. He sells out most of his court cases for plea bargains, which makes him the ideal candidate to take on a case that no one wants examined. He has no idea about being in the military and he's not really interested. He forces his peers, as I mentioned, to come and find him when he's on the sports sports pitch and he's generally sloppy and arrogant and um, insubordinate. He dis is very disrespectful of his clients, so Dawson, particularly Dawson, um, and this is shown when he doesn't even go to meet with him because he's playing softball and Joe has to go and remind him that Harold's in a waiting in a holding cell for Kathy to meet with him. 
So there are some things there where I think clearly demonstrate that Kathy has a pretty unhealthy relationship with the point of the movie. Can I just jump in here for a second? Because I think this is a really excellent point and we should pick up on it a little bit more. This is sort of a callback to what we discussed in the very first episode of this whole podcast. And that's a story makes one point, right? We have to know what point it is, what one point it is our story is trying to make. Because so often a challenge that my clients have and writers that other writers who are not my clients who I talk to have is that we're, we're trying to stuff too much stuff into a story. And it's not a failing on our part. It's just a symptom of our lack of experience in this industry, especially if it's our first book. We only have 80,000 words, 80 to 100,000 words. That's enough words to tell one, to make one point. So if we're throwing everything but the kitchen sink or everything and the kitchen sink into the novel, that's when you have a manuscript that just becomes bloated and it explodes to 200,000, 250,000 words. Um, it's not necessarily something to brag about. If you find that your manuscript is, is growing like that, then you want to ask yourself, what's the one point I am trying to make in this book? And cut out everything that isn't that. It might be a great point that this other stuff is making for um, another book, but what one point is the bookmaking and how, if we go back to the quote from Heather Davis, how is the protagonist having an unhealthy relationship with that point? And how does the protagonist's relationship to the point change over time? So um, I'm not actually familiar with Heather Davis. Melanie, is this from a book? Is it a blog? Where can we find more information out about this? Um, I will have to get back to you on that because I'm not <laughs> sure. It came through a um, a different a writer writers helping writer Facebook page that I was on, and it came up on a quote. So there's a couple of different writers pages that I've liked, and it it came up there, and it it was just fortuitous. And I thought, wow, that's a really good quote, and I could use that in um, my study of the forces of antagonism because and and this story in particular. So I'll have to. I'll have to go and find out a little bit more about her myself. But, yeah, it came from a, a writer's Facebook page that I follow. But I think some of the points there too that you made, Valerie, you know, about the unhealthy relationship and how is it that we look at that. And one of the ways that I thought about how can you understand what their unhealthy relationship is, and it comes back, I think, to what's and wants and needs. And in this instance, what they want actually, and compared to what they need, really is the gap but, and identifies what that unhealthy relationship is. And I could really see this in, in Kathy's um, story arc because what he wants is, to, is an easy plea bargain life and to bide his time until he gets out of the Navy. But what he actually needs is to step into the courtroom and fight for his clients and also become honourable. So he needs to do the right thing, even if it means he won't win. And this is a really important point that I'll get to at the end because Kathy, I don't think, fully wins, but I'll explain why I think that a bit later on. Right, so the antagonists are in the story to teach Kathy about honour and how to act with honour and to move him from the path of what getting what he wants to getting what he needs and so I think, though, that for me, the real theme about, around this is about honour and what it means. And so one of the most fascinating aspects of the forces of antagonism in this story is how they represent different parts of or different paths you could take um, to be honourable or not be honourable, as the case may be. So there's another quote from Truby. I found lots of really good quotes this week. <laughs> but there was a, a quote, this quote from Truby that sums up the basis, I think, of the story's forces, a force of antagonism. And that is, 
Values are the key to drama. Everyone must be expressing values. What is the fundamental opposition? Not which characters are fighting, but the core values that are in opposition. And to me, that really struck a chord as I looked at, well, how are the forces of antagonism working and what is it that they're really teaching Kathy? So to me, this story is about competing values. And because of this, each character, as I mentioned, represents an opposing perspective on honour. And they continually plead their case throughout the story and present their perspectives on honour throughout the story. And it really motivates them and drives their actions and their words in this story. Now, normally I would go through and answer a series of questions that I've given myself to prompt me to look at different aspects of the forces of antagonism. But this week, however, I have focused only on answering two out of my six questions. And today I'm going to focus on the logic and rationale of the forces of antagonism and what impact that they had on um, the protagonist. So as I mentioned before, the A Few Good Men is a fantastic example of an antagonist having their own logic and rationale. Colonel Jessup is right in almost everything he says about trusting another to hold your life in their hands and also from another person to ask you to hold their life in your hands. When life is what's at stake for any frontline unit, you need to trust that everyone can pull their weight, that they know their job and they can do what's needed when the time comes. Doubt and complacency cause errors that kill people. To be worried that Willie Santiago could not do his job and could not pull his weight places a burden on everyone else in his platoon. We do need people to defend what we value with the use of lethal force. Some may not always like what these people do, but we do sleep easier because these people provide a blanket of security for us. And trust me, service members and veterans pay an enormous price for putting their lives on the line for our safety and security. That is the truth, and it is also Jessup's truth. But, and it's a big but, Jessup has twisted the meaning of this truth, and by ordering the code red, instead of transferring Santiago off Gitmo, which would have been a perfectly valid administrative action for him to take, He instead decides to beat weakness out of his unit so that he can set an example, so that he can punish Santiago for going outside the chain of command and also so he can demonstrate his power. Joseph's experience and his reasons make an enormous amount of sense to me, but it just does not justify his actions and they are fundamentally wrong. His sense of his own power has grown disproportionately and his hubris eventually leads to his undoing. And that's where we see Danny expressing his gift. So honour, code and unity do mean something. They are values that are worth holding, but they can be easily corrupted and distorted and take on a life of their own. There are also other values that are worthy to hold as a leader, such as humility and respect. And this is where Harold comes in because he provides the most meaningful contrast to Jessup's interpretation of honour, having a code, and how to grow unity. We are told that Harold was punished because he took another soldier food while they were um, restricted to barracks and had food withdrawn. So he went against orders. So Harold also really clearly cares for Luden, and in a way that demonstrates the type of leader that Harold is. He naturally takes care of his subordinates and Harold's interpretation of the unit's values is vastly different than Jessup's. Caffey, however, doesn't have honour at the beginning of the story and while he gains some honour in Harold's eyes by the end of the story, in my eyes, Caffey would still have a lot more to do to demonstrate how much he's changed and to demonstrate that he's a good officer, not just a good lawyer. But he's on the path and he's realised what that means. He had Harold, he held Harold and Luden's lives in his hands and he still couldn't give them what they wanted. 
which was to keep being Marines. But by revealing the cover-up and sparing them jail, Caffey has earned their respect and he may even start to respect himself, which I think is really important in his story arc. All right, so what impact, so we've, I've talked a little bit about it, but really what impact did the antagonistic forces have on the protagonist? And although there are different forces of antagonism in A Few Good Men, and it's really hard to go past <laughs> Colonel Jessup because he really is a fantastic villain, um, it's Colonel Jessup that's really in a different league to Kathy at the beginning of the movie. Jessup, though, is not the only force of antagonism. Kathy needs Joe, Sam, Harold, Jack and Markinson to get him to a point where he can step into the ring with Jessup. During the first visit to Gitmo, Jessup's contempt for Kathy is palpable and justifiably so. Kathy's hotshot disrespectful manner, don't even get me started on how he treats Joe, and by the way, hell would freeze over before I would ever let a junior officer like Kathy call me by my first name, but that's, a, that's probably a whole different conversation. But Kathy's actions this way show Jessup what sort of person Kathy is, and Jessup humiliates Kathy and Joe right there in a fancy dinner table, and he really shows them how far they've got to go before they even contend with, with Jessup in any sort of arena especially the courtroom. Now, earlier in this season, I stated that the strength of a story is determined by the forces of antagonism because the protagonist is only as strong as the forces of antagonism push her to be. And all the cast hold Kathy's feet to the fire in this way. Kathy is all about compromise and minimising the punishment from a legal perspective. When he offers Harold and London six months jail time if they plead guilty, Harold explains the honour code and how pleading guilty to something they didn't do is saying that they have no honour. Kathy doesn't get it. He doesn't get it on a legal level and he doesn't get it as an officer. So Harold putting his hands in his pocket, pockets when Kathy asks for a salute is such a significant insult and I don't think people fully realise how insulting that action is for a lance corporal to put their hands in their pockets when they should be saluting an officer. It speaks a lot um, and it also represents that Kathy is failing to represent his clients as a lawyer and he's also failing as an officer because he has no sense of honour and no sense of what it means to serve. So Joe also holds his feet to the fire to force him to step up. She calls him a used car salesman with rank, an ambulance chaser. And what Kathy needs is what Joe has in spades. He needs to care and he needs to understand the responsibility he has as a lawyer and an officer. And Joe really shows that, I think, very strongly in the movie. I love the way that she sets him up in the final court case scene as well. So she almost dares him not to push Jessup. She really challenges him or gives Kathy an out and he could take that if he wants to, but he doesn't. And I think that that is a really good way to show how much Kathy has grown in the story. So Joe and Harold are two key forces of antagonism in the main body of the movie who force Kathy outside of his regular way of dealing with legal matters and they get him ready for the big fight. And only after Joe and Harold force Kathy to grow does he meet with the villain. In fact, I would just go to, I would just do a bit aside here, an aside here. Um, I actually think that the forces of antagonism have the best lines in this movie, and I don't think that Kathy has a lot of any really, really good lines, and I actually think that's great. I actually think that's that actually adds to the realism and it actually adds a, a really interesting flavour to the forces of antagonism. They have all the great lines because they are the ones that are throwing down the challenges and the obstacles to the protagonist. I just want to mention some final points about the ending of A Few Good Men to wrap up. So I think it's worth pointing out that there's a slight problem with the ending or, well, you know, potentially. Um, so when Lau Loudon struggles to understand the trial, out, the trial outcome. 
Harold says, we were meant to protect people like Willie. And I agree with Harold, um, but it's really clear in the story that Harold had already been punished for disobeying orders and Lieutenant Kendrick and Colonel Jessup will punish anyone who pushes back with the way that they want to run their unit. So moral courage, which is really what Harold's referring to, is important and worth fighting for and worth being considerate of. But the systemic nature of the power at Gitmo would make it very difficult for Harold to stand up for Willie. So I think while Harold's sentiment is truthful, it's a little bit incongruous with the environment that Jessup has created in the unit. So it didn't quite ring true for me when Harold said that. And I think there's an interesting outcome in this values-based argument, and it's that no one really truly wins 100%. So even though Kathy, Sam and Joe get Jessup arrested, Harold and Harold and Luden are still found guilty of conduct unbecoming and they are dishonorably discharged, which is a terrible outcome for them because it's not what they wanted, but it actually is one that fits with their actions. So that idea that Kathy won is probably not as complete as the way that he's experienced winning in the past. So he wasn't able to get the best outcome or the outcome that Harold and and Loudon really wanted, which was to to remain in the Marine Corps. And finally, I think to wrap up, this is an excellent example of how values are used to highlight the protagonist's unhealthy relationship with the point of the story and also how the forces of antagonism make the protagonist understand the point. All right, Valerie, that wraps up my analysis of the forces of antagonism in A Few Good Men. All right, that brings us to today's action step. What I want you to do is consider how you use exposition in your story. Where can you use it to improve the pace of your writing? And where can it help you propel your story forward? Right. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we discuss the movie Wild. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For even more information about putting story theory into practice, subscribe to Valerie's Inner Circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. If you'd like to find more out about me, visit melaniehill.com.au or visit me on Facebook as Melanie Hill Author. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take one step at a time and have fun.